Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Meltem Demirers is Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares, a digital asset manager and research platform. Before CoinShares, Meltem was Vice President at Digital Currency Group. In today's show, we discuss her thoughts about the next equities bear market, why Meltem is skeptical of the crypto will help developing nations narrative, and the philosophical parallels she sees between alchemy and Bitcoin. Hey, Meltem. I'm so excited to have you on the show. And to kick it off, um, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background on you and what you're up to for our listeners who don't already know. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here, Suna. I do have to disclose I'm an investor in Token Daily. So let's get let's get that out in the open. So no one thinks I'm shilling Token Daily. Yeah. <laughs> Number one shill. Um, so me, I, I don't need to spend a lot of time on who I am or, or what I did. Uh, I got excited about Bitcoin about five years ago, started working in it professionally at a company called Digital Currency Group, which at the time when I joined was an idea that was forming. Um, and so joined that firm, helped build it out for three years, really focusing on new investments, new companies that were being added to the investment portfolio, collaborating with the subsidiaries, which included an OTC desk, an asset management business, and a media company, um, Coindesk, and then really thinking of ways to start to connect all of the dots in the DCG ecosystem, but also the broader Bitcoin ecosystem at the time. And then as we started to move from just Bitcoin to Bitcoin and Ethereum, and then Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything else, really trying to make that all fit together. So it was a great experience. Um, It's amazing to be able to work with 120 different companies in the industry, to work with great founders. And then last year, I got to the point where you know that was a great experience, but I wanted to go out and try things on my own and just was viewing the world in a slightly different way. So I said, hey, I'm going to just take a leap of faith <laughs> and see what's out there. So over the last year, I spent a little bit of time really traveling around, going to different parts of the crypto ecosystem. I feel like sometimes you get trapped in these little bubbles and you don't realize it. And so after three years of being in one community, having the opportunity to sort of pop my head out of the bubble and say, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot going on. That was really great. I traveled to Europe and to Asia, um, spent some time on the West Coast, and it was really helpful. And then I kind of sat down and said, well, what do I want to do now? I started talking to Danny Masters and Ryan Radloff over at CoinShares, and CoinShares is a digital asset manager. We create retail and institutional products that help investors of all types get risk-managed exposure to the crypto asset class. And so started working with them, found we really shared a a lot of the same vision, the same values, 
And so over the last eight months or so, have been working on building out our U.S. business and looking forward to over the next few weeks and months, starting to really share with the market what we've been working on here in the U.S. And that's what I've been up to. That sounds exciting. Let's rewind several years back to when you were studying in Europe. You mentioned before that you were actually studying Keynesian economics, and it seems like the majority of Bitcoiners, though, subscribe to other economic schools of thought, uh, mainly of the Austrian variety. Uh, How has your viewpoint on economics changed, and what made you skeptical of Keynes? Sure. So when we study the broader topic of economics, economic theory, one of the things we can say with certainty is Economics is really a science that tries to create understanding, typically driven by empirical observation or or data um, of how people, markets, and on the both a micro and macro scale function and respond to different stimuli, different events. So what's been interesting to me is we started with Austrian economics, which are really focused more on free markets. It's a bit more libertarian, if you will, um, although I don't really want to prescribe to those those labels. And Keynesian economics, um, if you think about when Keynesian economics came about, you think about the impacts of the great wars of the 1900s, was a bit more interventionist, it was really about governments stepping in to um, stimulate the economy at certain times, uh, really thinking more about inflation and deflation. And so what has sort of happened, I think, people in Bitcoin really like the idea of Austrian economics because I think it really captures some of the spirit of Bitcoin and monetary systems that are not interventionist. What I think is interesting, what I've really been spending my time on lately is less Austrian Keynesian economics, but modern behavioral economics. So if you look at things like the theory of the firm, which started with Jensen and Meckling in the 1930s, and then Coase and Fama wrote about it, a lot of Nobel Prizes have been won um, by behavioral economists. When we think about labor economics and the work that's been done there, I think a lot of what we're trying to parse with cryptocurrencies is how different incentive systems work. And it goes back to game theory, information asymmetry, moral hazard, and how we design systems that, in the words of Nick Sabo, are socially scalable money systems, which I think is really interesting. So for me, learning about Keynes and economics, because I was studying for a year in the UK, it was a great way to start to understand a lot of modern monetary history. For example, Bretton Woods, um, QE, some of the policies that were pursued. Now, I was in school um, from 2005 to 2009. So this was 07, 08. We were living the financial crisis in real time. And so studying um, through that lens was just very interesting. But I don't think for me personally, I really started to connect some of the theory and history I had learned with what I was living personally as someone who lives in the U.S. and had a college education and had a credit card and had access to financing, I didn't really start connecting the dots until I started learning more about Bitcoin. And so what I always think is one of the really amazing things about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general is people who start learning about it and getting excited about it and interested in it, inevitably through their journey, also start learning about economics, economic theory, and the way our financial system works. 
And so historically, you've never really had a reason to care about how banks work and how monetary policy works and why we had the gold standard, why we moved away from it and what it what sound money actually means. But as a result of people getting into cryptocurrency and trying to understand why it was relevant and trying to frame it and contextualize it, we've actually forced a whole generation of people to learn about economics and finance. So for me, the journey is ongoing. I'm continuing to learn. And I think what I'm most excited about is starting to develop a new body of knowledge about crypto economic systems. We're starting to see some of that happening, um, but I'd love to see more economists, more researchers, more philosophers, uh, more ethicists study some of the ways that behavior works in crypto economic systems to start to help us develop a body of knowledge of what works, what's theory, what's actually proven, et cetera. Long answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. Don't apologize. And I absolutely agree. I think um, people tend to develop this myopic view where they think of crypto assets uh, in purely a tech lens or purely an economic lens, but drawing on social behaviors, drawing on, you know, game theories and incentive designs, psychology um, and history. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, it's a catalyst for a lot more fields than they than they, than they think. So when you were at MIT, there was kind of this MIT Bitcoin club that formed and it included you, Danny Litzer, who's at IDEO, Jeremy Rubin, and a few others. I was curious about how you guys all met and um, how you decided to make the leap into crypto. Sure. So MIT was a really fun experience for me. I had spent the first six years of my career, I worked on a trading desk all through college. Um, I traded ethanol and methanol and started trading in carbon markets. So not crypto, (laughs) anything at all. Um, Then I went into oil and gas M&A as a consultant and spent some time on the corporate finance side of the oil and gas industry. And then I just got to a point where I think I was good at my job. I was fairly successful at what I was doing, but I just wasn't really enjoying it. And so what do you do when you don't know what you want to do? You go back to school and incur a massive amount of debt. So um, and actually, my consulting firm was sponsoring me when I went to business school. So it seems like a very low risk bet. So I went to MIT. And when I got there, I had never really been exposed to entrepreneurship or venture capital. I was working in the one of the stodgiest industries, oil and gas. And so I started to get exposed to all of these new ideas. Coincidentally, right before I had gone to grad school, I had started to get into Bitcoin just personally. And so when I got there, I was more peripherally involved. I started to get really involved in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, worked with fintech startups in the Boston community. Boston at that time, you know, there were a number of financial institutions there, Fidelity, State Street, and a number of others. There was a strong cohort of fintech companies that were successful and raising capital, generating a lot of buzz, starting to experiment with new business models around hedge funds, um, data, capital markets data, and how that's utilized into decision making. Uh, And so I really got drawn more into the venture capital community and the startup ecosystem. But they started doing a lot of great things with Bitcoin at MIT. And I think Dan Elitzer and Jeremy Rubin, who started the MIT Bitcoin Club, and then Dan and I worked together to start the MIT FinTech Club, which was sort of a subsector of that. And the two intersected um, a little bit. 
what was so interesting is you had students who were mining Bitcoin in their dorm rooms. You know, you have free power, so why not? And some of them would light their dorm rooms on fire. So we were hearing about that on campus. Then Jeremy, I believe, actually started with a few other students a Bitcoin faucet. And they got sued by the state of New Jersey. And I just remember how ridiculous that was that the these university students were getting sued <laughs> by a state for what they perceived to be running an illegal lottery. And so it's just very interesting. Then the Bitcoin experiment happened where a local um, entrepreneur investor who you know was willing to fund some research around Bitcoin uh, collaborated with the Bitcoin club to give $100 of Bitcoin to each undergraduate student. And I remember being really upset because I was a graduate student, so I was not going to get any Bitcoin, um, but that's okay. And so just over the two years that I was in graduate school, I started to get pulled more and more into the orbit of the Bitcoin community. And then as I was leaving MIT, um, you know, I was looking out at the landscape. I definitely was not going to go back into consulting, which meant that I was going to have a lot of debt because that sponsorship I had been banking on was now not there anymore. I had to repay all of my tuition costs, uh, which turned out to be fine, but a little scary. And so Dan actually introduced me to Ryan Selkis. Ryan Selkis had been in Boston, was supposed to be in Dan and Mai's program, supposed to be one of our, um, you know, class members, but decided to not go to school and do Bitcoin instead. So I met Ryan Selkis that way. Ryan introduced me to Barry, who he just started working with because they were looking to add someone to the team that had uh, my skill set. And so it was just this weird environment where there were a lot of these connections getting made. And so it ended up being such a great time to be there. And I think MIT is still one of these places where the students are really active. The MIT Bitcoin Club continues to bring really phenomenal speakers to campus every year. They organize the MIT Bitcoin Expo, which has been really fantastic in all of the years that I've gone. They've had great developers, great businesses come and speak. Um, and so I think being in that type of environment, whether it's MIT or it's Stanford or Berkeley or these other places, um, it's just such a great thing to have, especially when you're at a phase in your life where you're not working 40 or 60 hours a week, where you don't have a lot of responsibilities outside of your coursework. It just provides you with this freedom to think and explore in an environment where there's not as much pressure. And for me, that was a massive, massive shift in how I thought about what I wanted to do with my life. Wow. And around the time at MIT, and as you're thinking about joining DCG, what were some of the beliefs that people had about the space at the time that are dead now? And what thoughts have you seen uh, continue and have seen out in the space today? That's a really good question. And the one thing that certainly has stayed the same is Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is still king right? Um, Bitcoin was the first idea that really pulled people into crypto and cryptocurrency. Um, and I think there's so many things about Bitcoin that are so elegantly designed and so well conceived. And I think a lot of people still view the world that way, particularly at MIT, 
because there's the MIT DCI, which supports the work of three Bitcoin core contributors, as well as um, doing code reviews on new protocols. There is sort of this bent towards Bitcoin. Um, there's some work happening there with Lightning and some other protocol level improvements, which I think is really great. So I think there is this belief that's been pervasive, that's been hard to shake, that really it's always been about Bitcoin and maybe will always be about Bitcoin. So I think that's been interesting. And I myself have had, you know, what I like to call my shitcoining days. Um, And I say that tongue in cheek. I think the experiments people are conducting around other protocols, other forms of consensus, other um, blockchain-based assets are good experiments. I think what we're seeing is many of those experiments just really don't work. Um, And a lot of the behavior we see, if we go back to this idea of behavioral economics, the incentives are completely messed up. It's like you take everything you know about people and moral hazard and information asymmetry and what that does, and you create a system that exacerbates it and enable um, encourages people to behave in the worst ways possible. Like it's it's really interesting to me how badly that uh, in the incentives in a lot of ICOs were were designed. Beliefs that are dead now. I think one belief that's definitely dead is I don't know if there are any beliefs that are dead. No, I think people still have a lot of the same beliefs about Bitcoin then, and they still have those now. Cool. I mean, yeah, I guess you could argue like, oh, the ICO fever has dwindled down, but there are firm believers and there's some invested circles where people still do believe ICOs will be a thing and uh, continue to run them. And I think maybe that's what's cool about the space is like people still continue uh, trying to prove it out. And um, you really can't kill it, (laughs) both like in the ethos and in ideologies. But that's the beauty of this, right? So if you believe in Austrian economics and you're not an interventionist and you believe in free markets, if we've created this substrate on which people can print infinite amounts of money that they conceive and other people want to buy it, who are we to stop it? Exactly. Right. Exactly. What do you think are um, some ideas or some experiments being run that people are overlooking that you think could get bigger later on? Sure. I think certainly um, one of the things I've been excited about is more developing a better understanding of what network participation actually means in different protocols. So when we think about mining, for example, in the Bitcoin network, there's this perception that mining is purely a economic function in terms of it being a business model, where um, you have to look carefully at CapEx and OpEx, and really it's a business model. But I do think there is something around political participation that's really interesting. There is power that comes from being someone who has a substantial amount of hash power. And we've seen that play out and we've seen people try to leverage that power. I think the story that's playing out with Bitmain right now is a really fascinating one. I don't know how it's going to end. I know there's a lot of gossip, a lot of rumors out there. I am waiting to see where the chips fall (laughs) once the dust settle, how things shake out. But that's certainly a cautionary tale of what happens in my view when people um, believe that the role they play in the network and the fact that they control a large amount of the network, um, when people start to try to extend that into various forms of politicking, 
I think Bitcoin's been surprisingly resilient. Maybe it's it's not surprising, but to me it certainly has been because there have been times where I've felt that the quote unquote centralization or at least concentration of um, mining has, has been concerning to the overall health and sort of long-term viability of the Bitcoin network and some of the values that we hold collectively. What's interesting now is we're seeing the emergence of different types of networks, whether it's the Lightning Network, which is built on top of Bitcoin um, with tons of new payment channels emerging, tons of new users onboarding. It'll be interesting to see how the topology of the Lightning Network develops and what that means for that particular network and the ability for people to trust payments they send over LND, right? It's experimental, but we're starting to see service providers emerge that are going to play a critical role in the growth of the Lightning Network. And we're starting to think about how exchanges and PSPs and other sort of ecosystem players that facilitate access to these networks and enable people to move assets between these networks, what that could look like. So I think that's really interesting, looking at the way that networks emerge, what that means for the way those network topologies get shaped, what that means for the way end users interact with assets. We're starting to see new networks emerge that are running interesting experiments around um, not mining, but staking, um, delegation, and other types of network participation. One of the theses I've been kind of chewing through and trying to understand is whether or not there's actual value in on-chain governance. Um, this is something that I think Tezos is a great experiment around. We could also look at Decred um, or Aragon, for example. And I'm not sure where my views are on that yet, but that's an area I'm spending a bit of time on now is just thinking about these new types of networks. Some people call it generalized mining. I think that's kind of a poor way of phrasing it, but I think it's really participatory networks where we're starting to see the emergence of specialists um, one of the things I've certainly noticed, especially for people who aren't just focused on Bitcoin, but maybe look at five or 10 or maybe even 15 or 20 different protocols, is it's really difficult to keep up to date just with how quickly things are moving and how many new people are coming into the ecosystem all the time. It's really difficult to keep up with everything that's happening across all these different networks. And so I do think what we need to start to see is more specialization. And anytime you see specialization, you start to see the for uh, the forming of little cohorts. Um, I use the word cartel. That's a terrible word. It has really malicious economic implications. But hopefully um, the intent can be preserved. You start to see groups form that control not only these networks in the sense of they're doing the computational work and actually um you know, dictating the consensus process, but you start to see these people actually influence thought and you start to see these people influence how information gets disseminated. And that to me really um, goes back to, you know, politics. We're starting to see some protocols move towards this more politicized world. And arguably that's already happened in Bitcoin. Um, arguably, you know, the Bitcoin block size wars, if you want to call them that, were an expression of that, you know, Bitcoin did get political and it is in some ways inherently political because changes that happen to these protocols and the way these networks function and who controls access to what has material implications for the viability of certain business models. So I think that's really interesting to me is starting to think a little bit more about not just the protocols and design of the protocol themselves, which is where 
the assets are, but really thinking about that network implementation, um, how things are going to be supported using silicon and power. And then on top of that, what that means for the applications that get architected on top of these networks and protocols. So um, there's been a lot of great writing that's done about that. I don't need to pontificate on it more. And I'm hoping to start to put my thoughts to paper as well and add to all the amazing information that's out there. Absolutely. And you've discussed this before, but uh, crypto shouldn't be evaluated in just a vacuum. Um, And you especially make it a point to evaluate it on a macro scale and see how it's interacting with other disciplines. Some people would argue that we're heading into an equities bear market. Some think we're already in one. How do you think crypto, which has traditionally been an uncorrelated asset, will perform uh, in the next equities bear market? Sure. Um, The difficult part about making predictions is I can name a price, but I can't name a date. Or I can name a date and not name a price. (laughs) So I am trying to abstain from making predictions. But I do think one of the interesting things about the evolution of Bitcoin in particular is we're starting to see institutions get into the fray. And whenever institutions get involved, it really kind of changes the way that the asset class is perceived. So what we saw in 2015, um, when I was out on the street talking to all the big banks, trying to get them excited about Bitcoin, was, hey, um, Bitcoin, weird, blockchain we're into. So it's very much blockchain, not Bitcoin. And then they threw tons of money at blockchain pilots. um, And those projects, I think, have mostly gone nowhere. And now all of the banks are sitting there and they're looking at this and they're going, all right, we don't care about blockchain. We don't know if we really care about Bitcoin. And maybe they do care about blockchain, but it's more, you know, five, 10 years out, it'll be impactful because it's still so nascent. They look at Bitcoin and they look at the fact that Bitcoin has gone from being really tiny asset class to being, you know, an emerging asset class, I would say at $70 billion, it's still really small, but it's growing. But more importantly, banks and institutions, they provide services to their clients. And right now, every asset manager, every wealth manager, every desk on the street, I can guarantee you is getting calls from their clients asking about Bitcoin. So we started to see banks publishing research on Bitcoin. Uh, Morgan Stanley has done a few good reports. Um, City has done a few great reports. JP Morgan has talked about it. So banks are now publishing some research. They're educating their clientele about Bitcoin and Ethereum and maybe some broad level commentary on ICOs. They're really just not touching that for right now. And what's happening next is banks are looking at the year ahead and they're saying, okay, we're seeing pressure across the board on fees and margins. We have something our clients want but don't know how to access, and that's Bitcoin and Ethereum or crypto as a concept broadly. So in my view, what we're going to see is more institutions are going to start offering crypto to their clients. Probably the easiest starting point is in some form of structured product. So we're seeing futures, right? So BACT is going to launch its futures contract. Um, We have the CME, SIBO, and others with their Bitcoin contracts. But that's where I think it's going to start. Then they're going to start to look at the wealth management space, right? We've seen crypto funds. Last time I looked at the numbers, I think raised close to $6 billion. That's a sexy number. Banks want a piece of that pie. So they're going to try to think of ways they can consume some of that pie. And inherently, once the institutions start getting involved, 
And once this starts getting pitched to people who have capital to allocate as an asset and an investment, it's going to fundamentally change the relationship it has with the overall macro market. Because when people look at their portfolios today, you know, they have a bunch of different assets, and then maybe they have a tiny sliver of crypto exposure. I'd argue most people, their crypto exposure is actually bundled into their venture or hedge fund exposure, or maybe it's bucketed in their alternatives exposure. Um, and so as people start to add crypto exposure, I think it's materially going to change how crypto interacts with macro markets, because there's going to be more people participating in valuing their sentiment about Bitcoin and expressing that in terms of buying or selling, being bearish or bullish. And that's to me, um, what's what's really interesting is all these new people coming into the ecosystem, all these new people deciding to allocate or not to allocate, how are they going to behave? In my view, what's likely to happen is people are going to buy and hold Bitcoin, right? It's going to be viewed maybe as a longer term investment, but I don't know. Um, so I think it'll be very interesting to see how financial institutions marketing these products and services to their clients spin crypto. I certainly don't think the uncorrelated asset narrative is true. Definitely not anymore. We're living in a world where people are increasingly uncertain of what's going to happen. We saw an epic equities run over the last 24 months. Um, in the last quarter of the year, we wiped all of that off the um, off the table, went back to zero. And a lot of hedge funds in particular that were long equities or were value investing, especially quant funds that were trying to sort of gauge sentiment, um, got wiped out, had really bad quarters. So I think people are feeling uncertain. And anytime people are feeling uncertain, they don't necessarily want to add more risk exposure. And so people still view, I think, Bitcoin as a risky asset. Arguably, at the price we're at now, where we're already down, you know, 75 to 80% from all-time highs, maybe they perceive it less risky as less risky now. But I think so long as the macro environment continues to stay volatile, as long as investors continue to be skittish and fearful of risk, we're going to see Bitcoin suffer the same fate. And then it'll really be a, a question of how banks go and market this asset to their clients. And I'm just not sure how that's going to happen. Some people compare it to early internet stocks and view it as a growth strategy in terms of investment, whereas the overall industry around blockchain and crypto go, grows, um, Bitcoin is kind of a correlated asset that drives the market. So if you believe blockchain and crypto will be valuable, then Bitcoin is the asset to buy that gives you exposure to the whole ecosystem. Um, perhaps it'll be viewed as a hedge to political instability and economic instability in other parts of the world. I think that narrative is probably less likely to get perpetuated just because of the implications that might have for the stability of certain monetary regimes. Um, but I don't know. And this is why um, I'm very curious to see how institutions are going to start marketing this. But I think it's that's going to be the big driver here. Absolutely agree. I mean, you control the narrative. You pretty much control everything. I want to continue talking about the monetary stability of other regimes. Specifically, you've talked about how you became more cynical of the Bitcoin as a store of value, helping developing nations narrative, mainly because you've seen firsthand the trials and tribulations of your family in Turkey, who's dealt with the de uh, dealt with a lot of these problems we talk about um, hypothetically with Bitcoin. And they've seen it firsthand as lira, as the Turkish lira has plummeted. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that. 
Sure. I think anytime there's instability in a certain currency. So for example, when the Turkish lira um, plummeted, you know, and almost uh, halved in value, right? It was one USD equals four lira. And then three days later, it was one USD equals seven Turkish lira. Um, that has a material impact on people's spending power. And what really troubled me is I would get on Twitter, as one does sometimes, and people would say, oh, uh, this is where Bitcoin, like people should have bought Bitcoin. Bitcoin would have been the solution. I'm like, absolutely not. Because just like the Turkish lira has lost 50% of its value, Bitcoin has lost 80% of its value. So actually, from a spending power perspective, people would have been worse off owning Bitcoin as an asset. And so I find some of the rhetoric to be just so gross. Um, real people's lives are impacted. And I think just blankets saying, oh, Bitcoin's the solution to every monetary problem in developing nations is so dehumanizing in a way. Like these are not test beds for crypto. What I think is the point here is, yes, the Lira's had a rough year. Yes, Bitcoin's also had a rough year. But to me, um, what is exciting is if you are living in Turkey, or a better example that gets used is if you are living in Iran or North Korea or in a place where you have very little access to the financial system and you don't have the ability to diversify your holdings, Venezuela, I think, is case in point here. If you are forced to convert your Bolivar savings into Petro's and save in Petros, you're going to see a massive market develop for US dollars, a black market for US dollars. People want to hold something they perceive as stable. Or you see a market develop for gold, or you see a market develop for, you could even say cigarettes, right? Cigarettes in prison are a form of currency because you can trade them for other things and they have maybe relatively stable value. So to me, the point about money in Turkey being devalued is not, oh, you would have been better off financially holding Bitcoin. The point is more, instead of being exposed only to the lira, you now have the choice to be exposed, yes, to the lira, which is the currency you transact in on a day-to-day -day basis, but you also have the choice now to be exposed to Bitcoin. If you find Bitcoin to be valuable and you believe that long-term it will be better store value than the Turkish lira, you now have that choice. And to me, that is what it's all about. It's not about forcing Bitcoin down people's throats and saying, everyone must use Bitcoin, because that's very paternalistic. And also it's fraught with problems because all the people saying that are people who already hold Bitcoin. And <laughs> so it's a little bit self-serving. But I do think the narrative is, what's so incredible to me is we now have a choice. People have choice. You can take your Lira and you can use them on an exchange to buy Bitcoin and you can then hold that Bitcoin. And if some sort of event happens where you can't access the Lira in your bank account, you now have this digital store value. We're still not to a point where we really have robust enough infrastructure or even a great understanding of what might happen in a situation where infrastructure is deprecated and you can no longer use um, money, right? Or the internet's down and you can no longer rely on digital transactions you send over the internet. But I do think this idea of freedom of choice is really powerful, particularly when it comes to money, which is something with which people have an incredibly intimate relationship. Money sort of 
it can make you feel very secure. It can make you feel very insecure. Um, it impacts your self-esteem. The ability to save impacts your financial well-being, the ability to invest, the ability to get access to credit. So having choice to me is really what this is about. We're not here to force people to adopt Bitcoin. This is not about marketing Bitcoin as some sort of anti-government hedge. To me, this is really about, about allowing individuals. So again, going you know back a little bit to this Austrian point of view and this behavioral eco- uh, economist point of view, let's allow people to have choice and make their own decisions about what they perceive to be valuable and what they believe is best for them long term. Uh, I completely agree. And I think the other part to it is the on-ramp is something that people don't consider often. Let's switch gears for a second. Uh, You've joked on Twitter before that we should have a frozen yogurt L&D machine, but that sparked my curiosity. And I was wondering if you had other requests for products in the space, what would you like to see happen? Definitely. And I think it actually fits into what we were just discussing. I think one of the challenges in the space right now is that everything in crypto is lumped into one big category of cryptocurrency. And the hard part is, is cryptocurrency serves a bunch of different audiences. You have traders, you have investors, you have users, you have hobbyists and everyday people who are just trying to figure out what it is. Um, You have people who are trying to build products and services that actually are consumed by people who may not even care about whether or not it's powered by cryptocurrency. And I think one of the things we need to start seeing is sort of more um, a better articulation of how these different user ecosystems are going to have their needs met. So for example, the frozen yogurt lightning machine, to me, it's funny because a lot of people who talk about Bitcoin, a lot of people who are in the ecosystem have never really transacted with Bitcoin. They've maybe sent Bitcoin from one exchange to another, from one wallet to another, but they may have never actually bought something with Bitcoin. Um, I had a Bitcoin Visa debit card. Um, Meg Nakamura's company, Shift, made this debit card. So I had a Shift debit card in 2015. I bought burritos and sushi and wine with um, my Bitcoin and that was a really fun and interesting experience, especially when I had to do my taxes later that year. It was horrific. And then three years later, when I looked at how much money I'd spent on silly stuff, that was also great. But I think trying to make these experiences more real to people, trying to help people really use these things helps us also understand a lot of the limitations of these applications and products and services today. And so what I'd love to see is the development of more cohesive and integrated application ecosystems around each end use case. So for your traders, you know, they need portfolio management tools, they need better trade execution tools, they need ways to compare prices across different exchanges and optimize where they're trading to minimize fees and to get the best price possible. So traders have one really specific set of needs. So what does that look like? And how do we get all of those solutions to fit together? So instead of going out and having accounts with 30 different service providers and trying to manage 30 different touch points, you can start to bundle these things together into natural usage loops, right? Um, For example, I'm not an equities trader, but when I want to do something, I go log into my Charles Schwab account and I have my little checking account and I have my little savings account and I have my brokerage account and I can go in and when I type in, for example, the ticker AAPL, Apple, 
I see um, a bunch of data surfaced about Apple. I see the latest bid. I see the latest ask. I see 52-week low, 52-week high. I see a little rating um, on the side from a ratings independent ratings agency that provides that rating. So I get surfaced a bunch of information. And then when I hit the execute button, the trade gets executed. I don't have to worry about custody. Schwab is holding the stock certificates in street names. So I don't have to worry. And then anytime I want, I can go in. I can see my gain, my loss, how my portfolio is performing. Um, every quarter, I get updates from the company, you know, earnings reports are released, I get surfaced that information, I can delve into it if I want, if there are earnings calls, that information surfaced to me. So that's how traders are used to interacting with platforms. And so to me, um, we haven't really seen that in crypto, where we see complete usage loops, where products integrate with one another, fit together and really serve the end need of the customer. That hasn't really started to happen yet because these products and services are still immature. But to me, when I think about what's really going to be that catalyst that drives more adoption and usage of, in particular, Bitcoin, but also every other protocol, token, network out there that's been capitalized, whether it's through an ICO or through oodles of venture money, how are you going to build beautiful, seamless, integrated user experiences that someone can interact with that are accessible, easy to onboard to, and easy to manage. And I think that's where things are starting to move. I'm starting to see more and more businesses and entrepreneurs think about that. But that to me is really what's missing here is people can talk about cryptocurrency and smart contracts and a lot of these ideas until they're blue in the face. But then you go to actually use it and try to do these things we talk about, and it's impossible. It's difficult. It's buggy. It's slow. I've had this experience when I try to demo to someone how things work, and then it doesn't work because <laughs> the network's down or um, the mempool is really congested. So transactions take a long time to get through. And so to me, this is really what I'm excited about is can we start to articulate these usage and behavior loops that address the needs of different end customers? Can we start to figure out what types of companies and service providers may be involved in those loops of behavior? And then can we start to connect actually what happens in crypto to what people do, you know, the other 23 hours of their waking life? Well, they're asleep, hopefully, for some of it. Um, but crypto shouldn't exist as a completely separate thing right? For example, Uber doesn't exist as a completely separate thing in my life. I can just plug in my Visa card or my American Express card. And it, you know, I get messages on my cell phone, like it all fits together. And it's easy to use. And what I'd love to see is for cryptocurrencies be, to become easier to hold and to use and to actually fit into behavioral loops that we already have, or behavioral loops that we will have in the future. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's more of one from a usability perspective, making sure it fits within our day-to-day -day behaviors. But then I think the second part is, and this is pretty poignant, is packaging it in a way that's familiar to what people use today. Um, so the barrier to that use and that friction that presents itself isn't there anymore. But I also think we have to educate people also. For example, if people need to form new behaviors like custodying their own assets, then we have to, the burden of educating is on us as an industry. It really is. Right. Right. And we haven't done a good job educating people's evidence by all these people who've had their crypto assets stolen. But that is one of the big challenges is anytime you create a new category and you create a new form of behavior, you have to help users learn how to do that behavior. And I don't think we've really 
spent enough time focusing on the education component because it's hard. Right. Or guide them in a way where it is tough for them to mess it up and then they would actually do it. (laughs) I want to do a rapid fire round where I throw out a term and you say the thoughts that initially come to your mind about the topic. All right. Okay. You ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. NFTs. Don't understand it. (laughs) Privacy coins versus privacy features. More of a fan of privacy features. Less coins would be better, um, mostly because we have limited attention spans. But I do think that um, as long as the marginal cost of producing more coins is low enough, people would rather make coins than features because they can capture more value. Uh, Decentralized finance or DeFi? Yeah, interesting word. I think there are a lot of interesting ideas. Uh, I wish people would spend some time studying a lot of these ideas that have already been implemented and understanding why they failed um, before working on things like these. Yeah. So I wish we'd learn from history before going too deep into DeFi. I think a lot of the concepts in DeFi are just like layering risk on risk on risk on risk on risk. And we've already done that a lot in the history of finance. So not sold on DeFi. Interesting for experimentation, but arguably as we see by usage number, usage is fairly low. And then I just don't understand how your average user is going to interact with DeFi in a way that isn't completely terrifying to them. Uh, Grin versus Beam. Neither. (laughs) Tron, Binance, and the BitTorrent token. And you can expand on this for people who don't know the history between Binance and Tron. Oh boy. Can that be my reaction? Oh boy. Um, Look, a lot of people have done hot takes on this, but Tron acquired BitTorrent with their ICO money. Um, BitTorrent is, you know, it's an open source soft piece of software um, with a client that people can use to seed and leach files. Um, And then Binance is going to list this BitTorrent token, but then Binance has its own BNB token. Like there are tokens on tokens on tokens on tokens. And again, I'm just not really sure how anyone is going to use this because now I have three types of risk that I have to cross currency risk that I have to hedge to try to use BitTorrent. And so I just don't get it. But good marketing. (laughs) So this SEC statement, uh, the Hinman token stamp. No, it's not an SEC statement. Stop that. (laughs) The the Blockchain Association suggested guideline. Uh, For the SEC, a project should meet the standards for decentralization if it is more decentralized than the Bitcoin or Ethereum networks on June 14th, 2018. I, mm, you know how when someone tells you, um, and my mom used to say this, like, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Look, I I will say this, the Blockchain Association, a lot of investors um, have, backed this people are spending time on it a lot of lawyers and advisors and people are involved and they're trying to do something to create some regulatory clarity i think this approach i i really just don't understand it taking something one sec commissioner said and trying to turn it into a standard and asking the sec to adopt it is like I don't, in my mind, that's so many leaps away from what is feasibly possible. But look, I'm not a lawyer. 
I fully appreciate the frustration people have over the lack of clarity. But my interpretation is the SEC has had securities laws and they have been largely unchanged for the last hundred years. And they're not going to change now because a group of people write a medium post. And I, I don't mean that to sound insulting. I know a lot of, I'm sure actually a lot of hard work and discussion and collaboration went into this. Um, but I am not going to spend time on it. I think a lot of it is very problematic. I think some the date itself seems really arbitrary. Standards for decentralization seems very arbitrary. So um, I'm sure it's well-intentioned. I don't really know what to do with that. Completely so. agree. Completely agree. And that concludes our rapid fire round. But you, you've asked this question before and I, I loved it. So I wanted to ask it back to you. Um, who's someone in the space that's changed your perspective recently? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I had a great conversation the other night with Trace Mayer, um, and I didn't really know him that well before we sat down together to do the Coindesk's um, Bitcoin at 10 recording. Um, really like his view, especially what he did with um, Proof of Keys. While um, a lot of exchanges locked down wallets before January 3rd, which was the date for Proof of Keys, I do think a lot of what Trace talks about and what he's trying to educate people about is really important. Um, I also think that uh, Tony Tony Vase, who's a, a trader and kind of personality in the crypto space, he's doing a really cool conference in Vegas in a few weeks called Unconfiscatable, which I love that idea. So um yeah, I've been starting to dig more into and follow some more people who really are focused on the self-sovereignty aspect of Bitcoin and the importance of owning and holding your own assets. So I've just started to appreciate that perspective a bit more as of late. Cool. Let's take a quick second to talk about two of your side projects. You have a podcast called What Grinds My Gears, and you're pivoting it. Yeah, it's really. And so, yeah, can yeah, you a little right. background and what you guys, what you and Jill Carlson plan to do with the podcast? Sure. So, look, everyone in crypto has a podcast today. So, <laughs> kudos <laughs> to that. I think it's actually a reflection of the fact that um, people want to get away from their screens. I feel like. We spend so much time like reading media. There's way too much content in crypto. So I feel like I'm constantly inundated with reading and everyone's constantly like, oh, this is so good. You need to read this. You need to read this. And before I need to know, before I like even have started my day, I'm redlined on tabs. You know how in Chrome won't let you add more tabs? Oh, wow. I'm that way. I'm that way by like 9am every day because <laughs> there's so much great content and I could just sit on a screen all day. But I think what people desire we're human beings so we really like connecting with personalities storytelling has been you know the primary method of communication for millennia that's how we form social bonds and it's what shape has shaped our culture so i'm really excited to see the emergence of more and more podcasts um, and i i love that there are so many great podcasts that have guest speakers come on so you have Laura Shin, who's kind of the OG crypto podcaster, and she does a great job with her podcast. I think she asks great questions. Pomp's been a really fun one to watch his podcast sort of grow and expand. Um, Peter McCormack and What Bitcoin Did, he's just a lovely human, also asks great questions. And now there are more and more people who are doing content. What Jill and I really wanted to do with What Grinds My Years is 
no guests. It's just her and I, and she and I have been friends for a long time. And we have a lot of these conversations um, where we'll be sitting there just talking about a topic and we just get really into it. And what's funny is this happened a couple of years ago when we were skiing with Dan Held. And Dan turns to us and he goes, you guys should just start a podcast. And Jill and I looked at each other and we were like, that's an interesting idea. And then uh, we finally got our shit together. <laughs> we did it last fall and we did a five or six episode mini series. And now we're revamping it to be a little bit longer. And really what our goal is, is crypto people speak one language. Um, and a lot of podcasts have a lot of content that's very crypto native. I think for people who are in the world of finance or in the world of banking or in corporate America listening to that content, it doesn't always really translate because they don't speak crypto language. They don't speak the way we do. They don't know some of the terms. They don't view the world through the same lens. So what Jill and I really wanted to try with this podcast is to start to connect those two worlds a little bit more to talk about what we're living, breathing every day in crypto land, especially with some of the work Jill's now doing with Open Money Initiative in Venezuela, the work I'm doing with CoinShares, which is trying to focus on making this asset class more accessible and all of the challenges that come into that. And just both of us having been in the space for some time and having lived through ICO mania and seeing how narratives are evolving, we want to start to connect um, the world of crypto and translate it and add context to it and connect it broader macro ideas for a slightly different non-crypto audience. So we'll see how that goes. That's the intent. Um, and uh, how about Crypto Springs? If you want to give a little background about Crypto Springs, the event last year and what you plan to do with it this year. Crypto Springs was so fun to organize. So Elizabeth Stark, Stacey Herbert from the Kaiser Report, and um, Amanda Fabiano from Fidelity, we got together in about February of last year, decided sort of talked about why are there no good crypto conferences? Why are they all so pitch heavy and expo heavy? Why are there all the same speakers at all these conferences who really aren't doing things that we're very interested in? And we said, well, let's create a very different type of experience that feels more like the early Bitcoin conferences, in particular Scaling Bitcoin, which Elizabeth and I had worked on together back in 2016. And so Crypto Springs was born. Um, we had it in Palm Springs, which was great. We're doing it again this year. The focus is really just um, let's talk about technology, economics. Let's bring in new ideas, fresh voices, people who we don't hear from a lot in the crypto community. We're actually doing really interesting things in different ways. And so this year, I think we got a lot of great feedback from attendees about the speakers. It was a smaller event. It was 200 people. We're going to continue to keep it small. Is a little bit more curated, but we really wanted to create an environment where people could just come together, learn from one another, and be very relaxed. Um, we had a lot of cocktails. I was encouraging people to drink because we had an open bar, and I just wanted people to get their money's worth. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, I joke, I joke. But it was it was a very just fun, very relaxed, very collegial atmosphere. Um, we did some morning runs, we had morning yoga, we had discussion lunches, it was just very fun. And so by the time people left after two days, they had formed, you know, all of these new friendships and relationships. So we're gonna try to do that again, really just starting to connect people in a different way, creating a sense of community, and then giving people who maybe aren't always listened to a different platform to come and share what they're doing, what they're working on and share some of their ideas with the world.
Absolutely. Looking forward to it. When we were uh, chatting earlier, uh, you're talking about a few things that you were thinking about that are non-crypto related. One of them, you're reading The Courage to be Disliked. And I was curious of, of like what would be the top three takeaways that you've had from that book? Yeah. So The Courage to be Disliked <laughs> is a, a fun book. It's um, about Adlerian philosophy, quote unquote. But really what it's about is the relationship we have with ourselves and the way we perceive the world. And I think it's uh, just such an important part of understanding yourself and understanding how you perceive the world. Um, what I really liked about it is number one, one of the, the ideas, so the book kind of takes place as a series of conversations between a Zen master and a student who comes to him and says, I'm smarter than you, and I'm going to best you at philosophy and prove that everything you believe is wrong. So the student comes in, is like very aggressive and is trying to poke holes in the Zen master's arguments. And he's just calmly trying to articulate to the student what this philosophy is. So it's a fun read. It's very easy to read. Um, it's very absorbing. I think lesson one is really most problems that people have are problems related to the relationships you have with other people, but also with yourself. And by changing your approach to relationships in a lot of, a lot of times you can change um, how you perceive the world around you and you can change outcomes. So I thought that was a great takeaway. And for myself, that's certainly true. Um, a lot of times when I feel really strong emotions, like when I'm upset or I'm angry, I start to t tease that apart. And sometimes it's because someone's pointed out something about me or about something I've said that's true, but hurts because it means I have to acknowledge a weakness or a flaw or something I've done in the past that maybe I am not proud of, right? Or maybe it's something I've done at a time in my life where I didn't know any better, or maybe it's something I've done that contradicts something I knew to be true. Right? So anytime we have really strong emotions, typically it's related to your relationship with others or your relationship with yourself. Um, the second thing I thought was really great about the book is a lot of the problems we have or the neurosis we have or these ticks we have um, are generally a way that we try to pre prevent ourselves from being hurt. Right. So um, for example, being afraid to hit publish on something you wrote um, because you're fearful that other people will attack it or criticize you or even worse that no one will care. Um, when really, you know, when you hit the publish button on something like in all likelihood, people aren't really going to care that much because they have so much other stuff going on. They're really not thinking about you. And if they do, it's like, you know, maybe they'll care for a day and you'll deal with some backlash and it'll be constructive. So I thought that was really interesting that a lot of these habits and behaviors we build up are really ways to try to def uh, protect ourselves from emotions that we don't want to feel. And a lot of times we're our own biggest blockers to success. And then I think... Um, the third thing really was, you know, happiness is really about acceptance and just accepting that things are as they are. And this is something that in crypto in particular, lately especially, has been quite um, interesting to observe is so many people are trying so hard to change other people's minds or to argue about things that are sort of immaterial um, or, you know, they're shouting till they're blue in the face when it's clear that largely what they're arguing about isn't really the topic at hand at all, but they're just arguing for the sake of arguing. 
And so I think a lot of it is just learning to accept that the present is the present. The moment is the moment. What happens it was is what happens. And really the only thing you can control is yourself and the way you react to the world around you. And I've come to grips with the fact that I am not for everyone. There are probably, you know, people, I am sure, as a matter of fact, there are people out there who don't like me. And that's fine because I am not for everyone. And instead of expending my energy trying to change how they feel about me or trying to change how people perceive me or arguing with them, I just say, you know what, let's agree to disagree. You don't like my view of the world. I don't like yours, but I'm not going to spend energy trying to change someone's view of the world. I know who I am. I know what matters to me. And really, like this consciousness I'm living in, this reality I'm living in, that's really the only thing that matters, right? And, and another thing you mentioned was alchemy. And so I, I think that was a, a recent book that's come out and you quite literally met the field alchemy and um, metallurgy and it's, it's analogs to what we're seeing in the space today. So I was curious if you could talk more about that. Sure. So um, alchemy is so fun to talk about. It's one of these things. So I first got introduced to the idea of alchemy um, from reading this Isaac Asimov book. I think I was like seven or eight years old. My family was on vacation somewhere and I was bored and I picked up this book um, because my dad had this great collection in our RV. We had an RV. We were super cool. We'd drive around Europe in it. Um, we had all these Asimov books and Stephen Hawking's and Encyclopedia Britannica. So I was always reading random stuff. So I picked up this book called Elements. And what it was about is really how um, all the different elements on the periodic table were discovered. So like talk about, you know, dull book, but actually it's really cool. And um, the book really starts with the way that modern science and modern chemistry merge is through alchemy. And alchemy is an ancient branch or like an ancient sort of philosophy, pseudoscience um, that really emerged at the start of human civilization. People were like, people even back then understood the value of gold, right? And people would try to transmute base metals into gold. They would try to create elixirs to help people achieve immortality. You know, the fact that um, the pyramids were built are kind of uh, a testament to man's continued quest for immortality, man's continued quest for perfection. And over time, the pseudoscience of alchemy, which led to some pretty wacky things being tried, actually started to develop into real science. So philosophy, uh, modern science, especially chemistry and medicine, where people started to refine lab techniques and coming up with theory and the experimental method. And so to me, um, there's so many analogs between alchemy and what we're trying to do in cryptocurrency. In cryptocurrency, really, what we're doing is we're starting with a set of ideas and we're combining philosophy and um, we're combining economics and finance and technology to try to create um, monetary systems and to try to create provably scarce assets and to try to do all sorts of things that haven't historically been possible. And so to me, the interesting question is, is will it ever be possible? I don't know, right? It's like the quest for a perpetual motion machine. We don't know if it will be possible, but we continue to pursue it. Because if we could do that, we could prove that human ingenuity can overcome the laws of the universe, <laughs> which is exciting. But we're also starting to see the development, like we're taking some of these pseudoscientific ideas or these pseudo-economic theories that exist in crypto, and we're starting to see the emergence or the reintroduction of actual theory and the solidification of empirically observed um, behavior into actual 
science and documentation. And so to me, that's what what's exciting and kind of in this weird primordial soup of ideas and philosophies. And it's very active and it's very creative and there's a lot of space to explore. But as the ecosystem moves forward, I'm really hopeful that we'll start to evolve from pseudo-intellectual theses and pseudoscience and pseudo-economics into a more defined, more robust um, methodology-driven and theory-driven actual hard science. And whether that's, you know, integrated into existing economic theory, existing financial theory, existing beliefs about technology, whether it's the emergence of an entirely new science, I don't know. But it very much feels like we're in a similar stage here where a lot of the claims we hear from, whether it's ICOs or protocols or projects, um, they're very grandiose and they're, you know, do anything with the blockchain. It's Pangloss's magical cure <laughs> to all ills, um, when in reality, it's probably closer to, um, you know, just starting to understand some of these fundamental building blocks and how we might use them. Absolutely. And transitioning more into a hard science uh, framework or like mental state of mind, what are, like when you think about the future and you've mentioned specifically like human machine interaction, what things uh, get you excited? Oh, this is such a fun topic to me. So I um, was recently chatting about this actually with Chet McConaughey, who's working on Ocean Protocol um, and Ryan Selkis from Masari, who's my former DCG coworker. And we were having this dinner and the three of us were sitting at this table with a group of other people. And we were like the crazy people because we were talking about um, this recent book written by Corey Doctorov, who's a writer and um, it's kind of like a social commentator on technology. And in this book, it's called Walk Away. And what it's about, like, is we live in this future dystopian society that's ruled by um, oligarchic corporations, right? They're like family run mega corporations that rule the world and these few families have everything and everyone else is a wage slave in this like social credit system where if you behave well you get tokens and you can use those to buy things it's very dystopian and this group of people start to walk away and they start to set up these communes and what they start to figure out in one of these compounds or communes is how to upload someone's consciousness or a sim or a simulation of them into this network, right? And all of the people who've walked away have their own network that they've built. So that's kind of like mesh networking. Um, and then what happens is um, all of the uh, oligarchs that control the world, they're like, wait a minute, we can't let the walkaways have this. And so more and more people start walking away. They start realizing they don't have to live in the system. The oligarchs attack the walkaways, destroy everything. And then the walkaways realize, wait a minute, if we live in a physical state, we'll be vulnerable and susceptible to attack. So they all upload themselves and become sims and continue to live forever in this digital simulation world. Anyways, that was probably a poor synopsis of the book, but that's what I took away. Um, But what's so interesting to me about it is we, all of the technology that's being worked on, what's so interesting about it is we're trying to create alternative networks. We're trying to experiment with what it might look like to have systems 
that operate outside of the bounds of the existing internet we have and the existing ISPs. We're trying to, you know, with what people are doing with satellites and mesh networking tools, um, we're starting to look at different ways that human consciousness is evolving and changing. Um, we're starting to think about cybernetics and how humans could be enhanced with machines. And, you know, we already have that with prosthetic limbs, but now there are, um, you know, bio bags where you can bring an embryo to fetus stage and potentially even gestate the full term of, um, you know, a, a species from embryo all the way through to birth, um, which is like a crazy idea and probably not so palatable to many people. But there are all of these new advances happening, um, gene editing, for example, that could potentially remove all sorts of um, hereditary disease from the gene pool, but then obviously could also be used to make some people much better off than others. So this really interesting question around what it means to be human, what the pursuit of human nature is, and really it goes back to this idea of alchemy and philosophy, like humans have always sought to be immortal. Humans have this like egomaniacal view of the world and I we all do in some way shape or form like it's it's how we're wired it's how we think and so what's so fascinating to me is starting to think about these potential future states where you could just be purely a simulation so you have cognition and you have some concept of self but you exist in purely a digital world and the experience is so good and so realistic that it's very difficult to separate from the physical world, if that potentially is a simulation as well. And I know there are people out there who believe that hypothesis, and I won't go into it. But then it starts to get really interesting thinking about, you know, parallel processing and the ability to live in a million different states of reality at once to be able to choose what reality do you want, you want to live in to be able to sort of chart your own journey forever until the end of time in universes where anything and everything is possible. These types of ideas to me are just, they're so fun to interact with and play with. And I've been reading a lot more sci-fi lately, um, thanks to the amazing group of people I interact with on Twitter who send me over great book recommendations whenever I ask. Um, what are some sci-fi book recommendations that you'd give? Yeah, so I have a whole list on Twitter um, and I can retweet it or I can share it with you if you want to put it in the show notes. Um, what I'm reading right now, um, I'm reading Adrian Tchaikovsky's um, The Children of Time, which is really incredible and very much enjoying it. I just read um, Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson, which is about this group of people who goes to terraform Mars and what happens. And it's um, there's this interesting battle between Earth's political system and the different political factions on Mars and how they want to see this new um, planet evolve and grow. Um, so that's been really interesting to read. Recently read Walk Away. That was really um, great. I read Dune uh, about once a year. I think Dune is just incredible. Um, the Stone Sky series um, by N.K. Jemison is amazing. It blends like magic with science insane um three body problem has been a fantastic read and one that totally blew my mind i know a lot of people talk about it i could go on and on there are just so many great ways to remove yourself from this reality and just try on different perspectives 
And that's what I really value about reading. It's a great way to escape your phenomenal world and whatever's going on in your life and escape for an hour or two hours, or in my case, sometimes like eight hours because I read instead of sleeping and it's horrible. Um, But to escape and to go be someone else and live in a different universe and just get carried away in someone else's narrative. I love it. So good. Absolutely. And I think it really just pushes the constraints or the confines of what we think is possible today and has you think about what could be possible in the future. And I think that's always gets like those uh, little motors running and <laughs> different ideas. So um, we're actually hitting the hour now, so we're gonna have to wrap up, but thank you so much for joining me today. This is a fun conversation. It's always fun, Suna. And I look forward to seeing you again soon, hopefully before crypto springs. Um, and if anyone on the listening to this podcast um, is curious about books, the book list is on my Twitter, but I'll try to post it somewhere that's more easily referenceable. Um, and if anyone wants to chat, has questions, comments, uh, DMs are open. And I, I just love chatting with people. So I would love to hear from people and hear what you're working on. Hey, everyone. Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. Thanks again for choosing to listen to The Token Daily. I'll see you next time.